Today we're going to read from the uh, Gospel of John, and we'll read from verse 20, chapter 21, verses 15 on. So if you want to find that in your Bible, we'll get to it in a minute. But for starters, I just want to share something with you. If you don't mind indulging me a little bit. I like to write, I like to tell stories, and sometimes when I'm thinking about these Bible stories, they're just really vivid in my imagination in a way that I can't really explain. I just need to flesh them out, and I, I did that with this one because it's a particularly meaningful story to me. It helps to have been able to stand in the place where it probably took place and to see the images that I want to share with you. So just listen, maybe with your eyes closed, imaginatively. This is basically my interpretation of the passages that lead up to the one that we're going to read. It is just after sunrise on a cool spring morning, a lone figure sits silently on a low shelf of rocks near the lapping waters of the lake. He faces the sun as its golden warmth tempers the edge of the chilly breezes that sift his beard and hair. A curtain of shadow is slowly lifting up the side of the beige mountains across the lake. A million flakes of glint and glitter make the lake shimmer like liquid gold. His eyelids are nearly closed to resist the rising sun, but he intently watches the silhouette of a boat bobbing above the depths. Several men are moving about on its deck, gathering and stowing heavy fishing nets. The flaxen sail is draped over the boom at the base of the mast. In this light, it looks like an upside-down Roman cross. One of the men, bigger than the others, is barking orders and grumbling about the poor fishing. His shape is recognizable, but the brilliant backlighting obscures his finer features. The man on the shore smiles slightly as he pulls a weed from the grass and sticks it between his teeth. After chewing the weed for several minutes, he removes it and shouts, Children, do you have any fish? And the stir on the boat stops and silhouetted figures turn bodies and heads toward the one on the shore. He speaks again, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. The men on board the boat are stunned at the familiarity of the statement. After a moment of hesitation, the big leader orders the others to cast the net as he grabs an oar and begins to paddle the boat forward to extend it. As he paddles the heavy boat and he keeps looking, he keeps looking toward the shore at the mysterious figure sitting in the glow of the morning sun. Moments later, his boat jerks to stop to a stop as if an anchor has taken hold of it. As he turns to the others to see what's going on, they're standing in amazed silence as the net instantly swells with fish, too numerous to haul in. In seeing that, the big man mutters, it's the Lord, and then throws the oar in the boat, removes his tunic and sandals, and dives into the water. Moments later, the big man is directly in front of the one who called out. One of them is agape as he stands dripping and nearly naked. The other is still sitting with the weed in his teeth. The sitting man gestures toward a bed of orange coals with several whole fish roasting on improvised skewers. And he says, have some breakfast. 
When the boat and remaining crew is as close as to the shore as possible, the big man wades into the water and proceeds to single-handedly gather the net and its mass of shimmering, flittering contents and drag them onto the shore. Slowly the boat is grounded and each of the men wades toward their host. By now they have all been, they've all begun to realize who the man is, but when he breaks the bread for them, they're certain and tears mingle with sweat and lake water as each in turn sits down to join the meal the master has set before them. So that, in your mind now, precedes this conversation. Please join me in reading from John chapter 21 at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and one who was and one also had leaned back again let me just start over Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said Lord who is it that is going to betray you and when Peter saw him he said to Jesus Lord what about this man and Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay. Hopefully you've got a real clear image in your mind now. This is really looking vivid in your imagination, I hope. And now... Think about this conversation. This conversation has been analyzed so many ways and so many times, at least in my hearing, and it always comes back to uh, an analysis of the meanings of, for the word love and you know the fact that maybe Jesus said it three times because Peter denied him three times. There's all kinds of interesting interpretations, but, but today I wanna do something that I've often encouraged you to do in your personal Bible study. And that is just to take the text as it's written and see what that says without any special interpretation. Just read what's on the page. And we're gonna use that version that we just looked at through our English Standard Version. So what is the first thing we see there? Well, it, it's easy to think that this passage is about Peter, but it really isn't. It's about Jesus. It might be tempting to think that the passage is about John because after all, he wrote it and well, John does kind of like to remind us that he's the one Jesus loved. He's the one that got special information at the dinner table, you know. I mean, he does point that out. 
But it's not about John either. This is about Jesus. And if it be, if we're really honest as we study it, it if it's not about anybody other than Jesus, it might at least be about you. Because this is one of those transcendent statements of one of those things that goes beyond time. It's limitless. It's always fresh and real to whoever reads it. So when Jesus asks Simon, son of John, the first time, what do you hear there? Well, first of all, he's not using his nickname. He calls him his surname. He calls him Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, he says. Well, it had to be pretty clear to, to, to Simon Peter that, that he, wasn't getting you, he wasn't hearing his nickname. Remember how he got that nickname? This was the guy who, at the, at the other end of the lake, way up there on the north side, up in the hills above the lake, where the cold waters fill the lake, he was the one who confessed Jesus. You remember that? He was the one that said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you're the rock, man. You're the guy that this is all going to be built on. Well, of course, what he wasn't saying was, Peter, it's all about you. What he was saying was, is it's your confession that is the rock, the foundation upon which the church is built. It's the realization of who I am and what role I play that will be the foundation of the church. And so Peter had that going for him. Peter was a guy who was, I don't think, cocky or arrogant at all. I think he was just like a lot of type A driven. He's probably an oldest. You know, you know how the oldest siblings are. They're always kind of bossy and in charge of everything, right? All the oldest are looking at me with a smirk on their face right now, because you know it's true. I was the youngest until a invader came along eight years after me. So I have a real concept of the oldest, and I could see Peter being that way. I could see him being just kind of a, a, a driven sort of guy, you know. And he's just confident. He's not arrogant, he's just confident. And so he didn't have any problem speaking his mind and saying what he thought, and, and that had gotten him into a lot of trouble lately because by the time this conversation has happened, he's denied Jesus, and he's also had to reconcile with his lack of faith and his lack of understanding. In other words, what's going on here is Peter is being humiliated. And I would like for you to walk away from this today understanding that one of the goals that God has for you is your humiliation. We don't like that word. How many people like being humiliated, right? Everybody has that dream. I mean, it's in psychology books. Everybody has that dream where you're in a crowd and you realize you don't have any clothes on, right? That's the dream that identifies your sense of humiliation, right? So what what that means is, is that humiliation is not something that we strive for. In fact, it's something we try to avoid with a passion. And so in this story, we're seeing Peter's humiliation. That is him being humbled. Because, like I said, he wasn't arrogant. He was just like most of us. He was confident that he was right about most things and that he could, he could claim that he was a good person, and on that basis alone, he was worthy of God's grace. Most of us feel that way, but, but now 
Peter is confronted with his sin. Jesus says, do you love me more than these? That's a very telling statement because I have a feeling uh, six months earlier, if Jesus would have asked him that question, Peter would have said, well, confidentially, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, I think I do, actually. I think I do love you more than those guys. I mean, look, you know, look what I gave up. Look at everything I've done. I think I probably do love you just a little more than those guys. I mean, you know, those clowns, James and John, the Sons of Thunder, those guys, you know, they, they, they wanted to be on your right and on your left, you know, but look at me, right? So you can sort of see Peter maybe having to reconcile with the fact that, no, he doesn't love Jesus more than them because they didn't deny him. You know how it is when you're really down on yourself, you sort of forget things like the other guys didn't even bother to try getting out of the boat, Peter did. The other guys were following Jesus right into harm's way, or I mean, Peter was following Jesus right into harm's way, but the other guys ran and one of them skedaddled so fast he was in his birthday suit by the time he got away, right? I mean, it's important to remember that Peter's down on himself because he pushed his envelope further than the rest of those guys and still came up short. And so we have a tendency to hold ourselves to impossibly high standards. And this is why Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter's response is pretty straightforward. Jesus, you know everything. Come on. You know I love you. But he didn't say more than these. And we don't really know how much time passed, you know, but, but then Jesus asked him the question again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know everything. Of course you know I love you. Now, in the first place, Jesus said, feed my sheep. And in the second place, Jesus said, tend my sheep. And in the third place, he'll say, feed my sheep. And it's interesting because in each of these cases, the expectation is the same. Take care of something that really matters to me. But when Jesus asks him the question the second time, What's he trying to do? He's trying to say, if you love me, then take care of what I care about. Then there's that second, that third confession where he says to, to uh, the third, third question where he says to him, okay, Peter, I'm going to ask you one more time, do you love me? And at this point, Peter's starting to get a little agitated. Now, we don't really know if he was angry or he's about to cry. I mean, it's hard to tell, really, but he's agitated. And he says, Lord, you know everything. Come on, you know I love you. So it's not a question of whether Peter's willing to, to, to admit that he loves Jesus. He's just, he's just not sure he's good enough anymore. He's just not sure he's worthy but he's actually become more worthy because of his humiliation than he ever would have been before. You see, that's the thing about the cross. It's meant to be humiliating. I, I want to tell you something that's not going to be easy to hear, but the actual way that the Romans crucified people was to strip them naked and nail them to the cross and put them in a public place. It was meant to be humiliating. That's why they wanted it to last. They were, they were torturing these people to death. They were 
putting them on a cross in a way that left them naked before the world and slowly lingering in their dying. It was meant to be humiliating. And so what Jesus bore for us is our humiliation, our sin. Honestly, when you're in the depths of some sort of sin, and I'm not talking about moral things, I'm talking about when you're in a moment when you realize that you hope God's not watching. We all have those. What would the expression on your face be? How would you respond if suddenly God or Jesus, you know, appears to you in, the, in that moment? When you're in the midst of that moment when you don't want anybody to know what you're doing or what you're thinking, what kind of reaction do you have when you get caught in the act? Humiliation, right? It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's shaming. Jesus took upon himself all of our shame and humiliation, embarrassment over sin. In other words, we would be so embarrassed. And, you know, when you think about being in God's presence, you imagine yourself being very humble and adoring God and bowing down low. And, and you know, whenever I've prayed or anything where I felt like God's presence was really profoundly real to me, I wanted to be small, you know, it always just makes you want to be small when you're really feeling the power of God. And, and, it, and, and again, it always comes back to this humiliation. So Jesus is basically saying, if you love me, the secret to feeding my sheep or taking care of the things I care about is your humiliation. That is, putting everything that's important to you, about you, and for you aside. Let's hear the story again then. So here's what, here's what Jesus told Peter, and we always miss the, the continuation. We read it out of context, because partly because when we open our Bibles, we see things that publishers have put in there to help us use the Bible. And I'm not saying those are bad things, but, but page breaks, paragraph breaks, gaps or spaces in the text, uh, numbers and letters and things, all of that's very helpful, but it also has a tendency to make it harder to see what's going on. And when you read that passage, one of the things that you see pretty plainly is that Jesus goes right from the last feed my sheep into truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and uh, carry you where you do not want to go. And I want to stop right there because the parenthetical statement irritates me. Is it okay with you if I'm irritated with the Bible for a minute? This thing's my friend. I love this thing. I've been using it all my life, it seems, and I love this book. But that parenthetical statement bugs me. See, whenever you, in literature, whenever you put something in parentheses, it's, it's an indication of what we would call super knowledge or, or something that the reader is given privilege to know that the characters in the book don't know. So a parenthetical statement's meant to be, you know, super knowledge. And, and so for whatever reason, John, who wrote this gospel, wants you to know that, that this was Jesus expressing a particular statement about Peter's death and how it would glorify God. And, and you know, thanks... Thanks, John. I'm going to come back to that before we're done. But for the moment, I wish John just would have left it out or put it at the end of this thing. Because what happens after that, 
Jesus says, follow me. So he says, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. That is, take care of the things that I care about. I keep telling you that because I want you to understand that this isn't just a pastor's passage. You know, like, yeah, you're my flock and I'm your shepherd and I'm going to take care of you. No, that's all good and well. But, but honestly, Jesus cares about a lot of things in the same way that he cares about his sheep. He says that the best thing you can do is leave the 99 and go find the one that's lost or trapped or troubled or whatever. So, so when he talks about things that matter, he uses that shepherd and sheep analogy, but it doesn't mean, you know, like just pastors and church people. He's talking about a lot more than that. And so he says, care about what matters to me more than yourself. And basically he says, if you love me, be prepared to lose your life as you know it. Be prepared to lose your life as you know it. I mean, most of us say we think we could do that if Jesus asked us to do that, but seriously, look at Peter. Do you see what he did when he felt like a total wipeout or failure as an apostle? He went back to fishing. Now, there's something he knows how to do, except it wasn't working out very well that day at all. That's why I can imagine him be just storming around the boat and being mad, you know. Darn it, now I can't even fish. I thought I had that at least. And Peter is being told, you know, your old life is gone. It's over. Now follow me wherever I take you. And yes, right into your old age where you find that someone else has to help you dress. Someone else. I mean, just think about it for a minute. What I picture when I hear that passage is I picture some of the people that I visit in the nursing homes. Other people wheel them around and take them places that they don't want to go and they help them dress and undress and go to the bathroom and all sorts of nasty things. And, and I, hear, I hear Jesus saying, you know, Peter, it's going to be like this till the last days, until you're old and, and needy. And it could be that John is telling us that this is how Jesus meant to say that Peter was going to die. Not with his arms outstretched, you know, we picture the whole cross and everything. But I, what I'm thinking is, is he, his death glorifies God because his life glorified God. You know what I mean? That it, that it goes all the way from this moment of reinstatement, the scripture calls it in the, in, well, the scholars call it that. When, when Peter is, is appointed to go back to work, Stop feeling sorry for himself and get this business of being an apostle down because this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And oh, by the way, you'll glorify God because you'll live it right up to the very last minute. Even when you're being taken places you didn't really want to go. Even when you can't even dress yourself anymore. And the last word then is follow me. And then Peter, who is really starting to understand this whole humiliation thing, kind of messes it up a little bit and says, yeah, but what about him? I love that. What about him? And Jesus' answer is, is, need to know, man. It's not your business. You don't need to know what about him. You just got your orders, and your orders are plain and simple. Follow me. So if you love Jesus, you don't compare yourself to anyone else. You don't compare your service or sacrifice to anybody else's. If you love him, it's all about what he asks you to do. 
And then Jesus says, if you love me, and now we'll get back to that parenthetical statement. If you love me, whatever it costs you will be worth it because it'll bring glory to God. See how that works? That's why I wish he'd put the parentheses at the end. Because it's really just Jesus saying, look, if you love me, feed, me, feed my sheep, care for my sheep. In other words, care for what matters to me. If you love me, be prepared to lose your life as you know it. If you love me, don't compare yourself to anybody else. Just do what I ask you to do. And if you love me, whatever it costs is worth it because it glorifies God. There it is. And I'm sure that this is a passage that is intended to be transcendent. That is, it is supposed to be one that every time you read it, you hear Jesus talking to you. So I want you to do a little thought exercise right now. I want you to imagine where it says, Simon Peter, do you love me? I want you to imagine your name in there. I'll use mine to show you what I'm talking about. Dan, son of Edward, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Not more than these because I don't think I... Yeah, I'm not, I can't do that. Dan, son of Edward, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything, you know I love you. Dan, son of Edward, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, care for my sheep, follow me. Now you try it, you think about this passage as though he's speaking to you. It works, doesn't it? Because this is evergreen, as they say, this thing is this is one of those that it doesn't matter how many times you read it, you hear Jesus speaking to you. And honestly, my loved ones, if this church had 51% of the people that devoted to Christ, this building couldn't contain the energy. Amen? If you love me, care about what I care about. If you love me, lose your life. Forget about you. Quit worrying so much about you. And don't worry about whether you is better or worse than another person. And if it costs you everything, isn't it worth it? Because it glorifies God. Now, when we go to the Lord's table today, I'm going to invite you to experience it as though we're on the lake shore having a very casual, relaxed meal with Jesus. But first, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for setting us straight. Help us to love you, whatever the cost. Help us to love you the way you asked Peter to love you. And he seems to have done a pretty good job of it. Help us to serve you and to be devoted to you like never before. Because we just want to see your glory. Amen.